Hi, I'm Kate. And I'm Mandy. And this is Love Sober, the podcast for the sober and sober curious. Hi there, welcome back to Love Sober, the podcast for the sober and sober curious. And this is episode 113. And I'm on my own today and I'm interviewing Stephanie Shevers, who is a great friend of ours in the sober community and a brilliant coach and trainer. And yeah, we're really, really excited to have Stephanie on and just to dive into her own sobriety story and and find out how she works and who she works with and um, a little bit about what she does. So hi Stephanie, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm all right. Yeah, we always start with a check-in. So yeah, what's going on for you at the moment? Well, um, <laughs> it's lockdown in the UK, as I'm sure everybody's aware. So yeah, sense of humour firmly intact. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, it is what it is, isn't it? Um, we all have good days and bad days. I'm missing dancing. Most people who know me know that dancing is a huge part of my life. So, I mean, yeah, I can dance around my living room and around my kitchen, but it's not the same as dancing with people. Um, but, you know, first world problems, there are worse things <laughs> yeah. to deal with. I'm sure there are worse things that other people are dealing with. And it's temporary. Um, yeah and yeah the menopause is kicking my ass the last couple of days (laughs) (laughs) well it's I mean it's an interesting part of the the picture isn't it for women and and their health and their drinking I think like I think we're definitely seeing some that there's needs to be a lot more research around kind of hormonal health and addiction and you know and the whole picture so it, it does have its relevance and it certainly is a big part of a lot of women's lives so oh man I'm, I'm not looking forward to getting there I tell you oh dear well you never know you might be okay that's the thing is like we're so different and our experiences are so different of menopause and well someone said to me it was like look at your mum as a reference and then that will see how it is and I was like oh no <laughs> that's not a very good reference because well, it was really tricky for her so yeah don't panic about that because somebody said that to me and I had a conversation with my mum about it because I've really really struggled it's been really hardcore for me mm. it was like oh yeah I didn't really notice it I sailed through it it wasn't really a problem all right great thanks mum <laughs> yeah <laughs> all right so we always start the podcast by yeah a little bit about your own story really can you tell us what brought you to the decision to stop drinking so um mine was a bit of a oh uh, was a rock bottom it was a I was a bit of a steam train out of control um so I wasn't really thinking about my drinking even though I probably definitely should have been um and yeah so I got arrested a couple of days before Christmas 2005 (laughs) time ago now and while I was in custody um, I had plenty of time to think about how I had got there and I realized you know I had one of those epiphanies where I was like well I'm the common denominator so if I'm responsible for getting myself there I can be responsible for getting myself out I just totally got that I was 100% responsible for my life and when I came out of custody I was, they said I was looking at a three-month prison sentence because of my spectacular behaviour whilst under the influence. Um, 
And I was absolutely petrified. But even before that, I'd made the decision that when I got out of custody, I was going to sort myself out. I was going to sort my life out. And that started with not drinking and not taking drugs. And I hadn't really thought any further than that. because I mean, that's massive, sort of walking out going, I need to sort my life out. You know, there's no small task. Yeah, right. But I knew it started with the drinking and the drug use. And actually, the drinking was a gateway to the drug use. So actually, it was all about the drinking. Um, so yeah, came out of there and got myself some support and have never looked back. So one of the best decisions I've ever made. Wow, that's, yeah, that's interesting that just that that epiphany of understanding that like I am in the driver's seat of my own life you know like there's only me that can do it and so what was uh, your avenues of support at the beginning what, what how did you sort of yeah I suppose get sober um I I was <laughs> this is quite funny though so I literally it was not funny um I had just started doing my NLP practitioner course so really since the age of 25 so I was probably about 35 then when that happened but since the age of 25 I'd been curious around personal development and was sort of dipping in and out and meeting people and asking questions and you know like oh okay how does that work but not really grasping you know that I needed to do something really it was sort of I was on the periphery of it I dabbled in different training courses because I was interested and I decided that I wanted to learn more about NLP, but there was, there's a huge backstory to that anyway, uh, quite a big one. And I'd been lucky enough to get some funding to go and do the course. I found a really good course. that was like nine months long. So it was very much focused on the practitioner, you know, not just sort of learning the techniques, you know, about how you apply them to your life and work with them with other people. And I think, I'd done one, I think I'd done two days and then I'd got arrested. And and on those first two days, I'd literally turned up on my first day, having been out the night before. So hungover, you know, on a come down, not slept, turned up on my first day of training. So the trainer had got my number right from the beginning. So I called him up. It was just a really instinctual thing. I called him up and I just said to him, I'm in trouble I keep messing up. I've got this real self-sabotage thing going on. It needs to stop. It's gone too far. Can you help me? And he said, yes, I can. I'll come and see you. He came to see me a few days later, did some NLP with me. And, you know, that really helped to motivate me. But because I was in the at the beginning of doing the NLP practitioner, I was essentially in therapy. So that was, it was like my support and my learning So my trainer was my support and my colleagues were my support and my friends also were my support. So I was really lucky in that it was like this perfect storm of I was in the right place at the right time. And that NLP practitioner course was one of the things that I would say pretty much saved my life at that time. Wow, that's amazing. And what kind of that serendipitous kind of timing I guess it's that yeah that you put into place the kind of things that you needed but you hadn't realized you needed them yet right yeah totally I didn't I mean it was just that I mean it's ridiculous that I was I'd signed up to do a practitioner course when I was clearly heavily using 
myself is like, what are you doing? <laughs> but also really lucky that right at the beginning of that, I got to sort myself out and really use it properly rather than doing the course whilst using still and not creating yeah. it. Yeah. And so, I mean, where did your kind of, where did you, your drinking and drugging start? I mean, was it sort of party influence? I mean, yeah. Well, how old were you? And tell us a little bit about the beginnings. Well, teenager, really, like I think probably most people my age, uh, curiosity around alcohol, you know, sort of teenage drinking, <laughs> taking alcohol from your parents, you know, drinks cabinet, mixing it up, drinking it on the way to the youth club, that type of stuff. And we were right in the early days of the free party scene. You know, I can remember being 16 and being at Glastonbury and them playing dance music and there's being your know, acid house it would have been and there's being well, what's that wow what's that and you know seeing all these tickets flying around well they weren't tickets but just telephone numbers for free parts yeah <laughs> so it was right right at the beginning of all that stuff so it was very much part of our my peer group um and although I didn't I don't think I smoked the spiff until I was 16 or 17 I from the age of about 14, 15, I hung out with the lads. You know, I was a I was a tomboy and they were we were all different ages. There was a group of us. It wasn't our school group. It's just somehow we'd attached to each other. And they were very naughty boys and were participating in lots and lots of different substances. You know, back then it was cannabis, acid, speed, glue. You know, it's like that's stage before it sort of moved into the e stuff so I was around it from quite an early age and I was curious and asking questions I was around them when they were using or what happens so actually it's quite funny when I think about this because that's where the youth worker harm reduction drugs worker started it was already in me at that age it's like oh what's that how do you take that how does that make you feel <laughs> you know what happens when it goes wrong all that type of stuff yeah so it started there. So it was very much peer group curiosity and was very much attached to our social life. So festivals and free parties and gigs. And that, that was just a huge part of our life. And the drug culture was part of that. And we just continued with it, really. And, you know, we did have a really good time. I'm not saying it was all good. It definitely wasn't all good, you know, but it was very different for all of us. And I would say mine's very much 50-50. But, yeah, we did have a good time. Mm. And how did you kind of detach from that then as when you made the decision to stop? Because obviously that's one of the fears for a lot of people. It's like, you know, how do I still live my life and have my friendships? And, yeah, how did you detach from that side of your personality, I guess? Because if you've been in that scene, like I mean, like me, it's very similar you know upbringing I think we're both from the west country so I was probably at some of the parties you were at too and yeah how did you detach yourself I guess from that scene so I knew I quite early on I knew that I needed to do things differently in pretty much every way I possibly could and I had a very close friendship group that was attached to the partying who I loved very much I still love I'm still in con very much still in contact with 
And I knew that I wanted to stay in contact with those people because they were a huge part of who I was. It wasn't just about the partying. There was so much other stuff attached to it as well. They, they are essentially my community. You know, they're my people. So I I told them what I was doing and why I was doing it, which was met with, yeah, right, Steph. <laughs> anyway, have some of this. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> um, but you know it, it, they did support me in their own way and I had I had to be assertive I had to take the ball by the horns you know it was my life my decision I had very good reasons for making that decision and if I still wanted to see them I needed to do that in a way that was okay for me so I would say let's go for a walk let's meet for coffee let's go for a dog walk, let's do yoga, let's do spa days, you know, so it was me that kept in contact with them and did things differently, as opposed to, I, I stopped partying with them, essentially, I mean, to go to the odd one, you know, where it was somebody's birthday or a wedding or something, but I would go late and leave early and, you know, um, it was okay, I would just turn up and be sociable, because that's what you needed to do, because it's like family, mm. type thing. But it worked, you know, those friendships are still there the important ones but I also learned how to socialize differently as well so a big part of my story is that I went partner dancing and again I just got really lucky I it was a woman I met on my NLP practitioner course um she again just one of those people she must have spotted me from a mile off and just started talking to me and said do you like dancing and I was like yeah I love dancing She's like, oh, come with me. I had no idea where I was going or what I was doing. And she took me to this modern jive event. I paid £5 to get in. Huge hall, loads of people, different ages, terrible music. Um, but I absolutely loved it. And I just kept going there every week. So I was doing something different with different people, with people that didn't know me, with something that didn't revolve around drinking. Yes, of course, people were drinking there, but not in the way that they would be in a pub or a club or a party or even, you know, things that I'd seen in how people drink. It's very, very low key. You know, it's, it's yeah. partner dancing is like a sport. People take it really seriously and you can't, you can't drink and jive. You know, it's that. <laughs> Love it. It's, it's true though, because if you, I mean, not everybody goes to the dancing because it's very social and, and, and you can pick up as well. So it's a bit picky uppy in some places but for most people it's about the dancing and the quality of the dancing so if you have more than one drink you're not going to be able to dance properly or connect properly or spin properly you know yeah so it's pretty obvious if you've had too much to drink at those sort of events and it's quite rare so that was a huge part of it as well and I just kept going to that and going to weekenders and doing different dance styles and immersing myself in different dance communities so I I built a whole other group of friends that had no frame of reference in my past so that was I good. love it was, that yeah it was really good so I immersed myself in that community so I had my old friendship group and I was socializing differently with them then I did this whole new thing which was amazing but then also I had the personal development, professional development stuff because I'd done the NLP practitioner and I kept in contact with those people and went on to do the master practitioner and went on to do loads of other different types of training in behavior change. And that's a whole other community again. 
So there was there was a richness around my socialising. And I did quite a lot of um, going to the gym and doing gym classes and meet people that way as well. So I really sort of, there was a lot of variety and I broadened it out. I was very assertive and made that happen. Yeah, I love that. And I think it is so key. It's just that, you know, it's like you can't leave this empty space, right? So it's like if you are a social person and that's, you know, been a big part of your life, then you need community and that's what happened to me I mean that you know I went back and forth but the last time that I kind of quit for good was the realization that I needed friends like I needed sober friends I needed another community in my life that I could spend time with that I could laugh with but that had a different focus to the people that I'd spent you know the majority of my kind of young years with um, and that made all the difference it really did yeah yeah it's huge isn't it did you stay in contact with your old friends as well so I mean some yeah like um there, there's a kind of core group where again it's like when you take away the drink and drugs it's like what's what's left you know what I mean yeah. and so, <laughs> so and 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 also it just it got to the point where it's like I made them feel bad by being me in their space and they made me feel uncomfortable being in their space. So it was just like, it was just like a general kind of, there's no, like, I still love them completely. And, you know, and I still keep in contact with them. But it was just that sort of general kind of decision of like, you know what, this isn't working on either end. You know, I don't, you you do what you, you do, you do you and I'll do me kind of thing. Um, but my best mates from that time are still my best mates. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah so what you've mentioned dancing what other sort of self-care practices do you have to kind of keep you well and and on the sober path so um the the things that are really crucial to me which are just about sort of emotional well-being for me because alcohol just really isn't an issue for me anymore and it hasn't been for a long time um you know I describe my experience as changing my relationship with alcohol which for me means alcohol just not being a problem so it isn't you know it it, I don't really get cravings I it yeah it's just not an issue at all and hasn't been for ages so for me my self-care is about how I look after my emotional well-being so a huge part of that for me is sleep um you know making sure that I get good quality sleep I drink water but luckily being an old raver that was firmly in firmly <laughs> quite a young age so I don't have any problem with my water intake um eating good quality foods whole foods you know fruit and vegetables exercise you know they're my sort of non-negotiables they're the things that I have to do and they're like they're what I call the fundamentals really that when I do these things consistently, then I've got that basis of feeling good, no matter what's going on in my life. And connection is a huge part of that as well. You know, how I connect and who I connect with. Um, And for me, it's about living my values. So luckily, when we get to do the sort of work that we do, we're in this space. So we're working with people, but we're also, you know, we're also working on ourselves from time to time. So it's, we get to do that. We get to check, am I living my values? Am I living life the way that I want to live? You know, so pleasure and freedom are a huge part of that for me as well. So how do you get, because I mean, I guess 
a question that we get quite often and I suppose you do too is like but you know kind of how do you get high like how do you get like you know that that high feeling and I always struggle with this one because it's like well I don't think I actually really I don't crave that like I just I like I really enjoy being just on an equal plane and it being balanced for me but I know some people do they still need that way of kind of like getting that rush um so yeah I wondered for you what does that look like yeah it's interesting that I yeah I get asked that question and I think there is definitely something depending on what type of user you were Mm. there is definitely something in that first year isn't there it's like well what did it give you what did you get from it and then if you take that away then how else are you going to get that thing rather than just leaving an empty space isn't it Mm. so I think there is something about that I know for me it wasn't premeditated but dancing filled that gap for me so when I stopped drinking and taking drugs yeah I definitely had a period of time I call it um my robot phase (laughs) where everything was like black and white or a bit gray you know so there's no color there's no extremes but actually I quite liked that because I'm not getting the highs but then I'm also not getting the ridiculous lows either I I needed that but also for me it was very much about there was a period of time of resetting that brain chemistry and my body and just me repairing and recovering myself and then you know, I just got really lucky with the dancing. I, that really hit my buttons. And after a while, it was like, oh, this is actually something really quite special here for me. You know, I, I went on to start competing, um, which I found incredibly exciting. And so I got to travel a lot and I got to dance with some of the best dancers in the world. And when you're on the dance floor with an amazing dancer and you have an amazing dance, that's the same as doing a really good E. <laughs> so, obviously, it doesn't last as long, <laughs> you know, but you, it's such a nice feeling. And I think it's if you are somebody that needs those buzzes or recognizes that you need those feelings, then I would encourage you to, you know, have fun and like go on a journey and, and find that and experiment that. But don't get caught up in the quick fixes. You know, that. That took years, that whole process for me. And I wasn't in a rush and I enjoyed all of it, you know? And it was a very slow sort of like realization of, oh, this is one of my essential tools. And actually, it's really quite special. And this is one of the things that's keeping me going. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Because it brings into that sort of element of achievement, you know, that we get that yeah. that feeling of achieving something. So it's it's like when you... I guess it's that it's that reward center again isn't it it's like well you know when you set out your mind to um you know train for a race or to relook your house or to learn to dance or you know then you're going to get that feeling of like yeah man I totally rocked it but it is that overarching kind of goal rather than these quick fixes because with the quick fix you get the you know the quick low and the sustainable low afterwards as well and I love that sort of description of it being grey and then adding in colour because that's just how it was really in the beginning it's just like you know one day at a time get through it be a robot routine and then you start to add in colour you know until you get to this point where your life is kind of yeah full of living in HD really which it kind of feels like now 
Yeah, really. And, and so even that, if I'm a bit grumpy today, but that's yeah, You're allowed to be. But but what's interesting about that is some of that happens because you take actions. So it's going out there and trying stuff and you know figuring it out. But some of it just happens anyway. So, and I'm sure you've had this. You know, one of the things that I noticed, and I can't remember how far in I was in. I was probably quite a long way in, maybe even a year, when I just noticed a feeling of euphoria for no reason whatsoever you know your joy of just like maybe looking at some grass or something I don't know I don't even know if I was doing anything and I still experience those moments of pure love or pure joy or euphoria or well bliss or whatever not always as a result of me doing something they just happen and that's because I'm living life and I'm not using substances. I'm 100% sure that that's what it's about. Yeah, and I yeah, I love that and that unexpected kind of moment of like wow. That was really special and it's being present, isn't it? Being present yeah. in your own life. Yeah. Yeah, it's a spiritual thing, isn't it? Which is what a lot of people talk about in this process, isn't it? Yeah, I still struggle with spirituality, but yeah. Oh, <laughs> another conversation. <laughs> yeah. But it's just it's just something that I don't. Yeah, I I can't. Be I, I'm in the presence of my own life rather than. Yeah, it is another conversation. <laughs> I just I, I have no I have no spiritual kind of connection, but maybe I do. But maybe oh, I, I think you do, Mrs. Conversation <laughs> another time. <laughs> yeah. So um, tell me a little bit about what you do. So if people want to work with you, how do they do that? And, you know, what, because obviously you've, you've had a bit of a journey in terms of you started as a drugs counsellor, is that right? And then you moved into coaching. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I do pretty much every job you could possibly do within treatment services and behaviour change. Um, so young persons, drug worker, working in children's prisons, psychiatric units, hostels, um, outreach worker, drugs and alcohol, alcohol worker, family worker, you name it, I did it. Um, loved every job. You know, I was quite happy to do temporary contracts and just bounce from one to the other because you were learning something every time you worked on a different project um, and ended up running three different treatment services, which was amazing until it wasn't amazing. Um, and that's when I left the last one as a as a treatment manager because it just wasn't working for me anymore which was you know a great decision I think for me and I've gone on to do a number of different things but essentially it's coaching teaching training anything around alcohol mostly I'm always happy to have conversations around drugs so uh, I do sort of one-to-one coaching and online coaching and group coaching but also do quite a bit of training training workers around alcohol assessment and brief intervention and a lot of what I do so there's two strands to it so a lot of what I do with sort of individuals that are drinking or using drugs is probably quite similar to what you guys do but you know supporting them to believe that they can you know that they they can make changes to their life that they can learn you know that it's about possibility and they can live life on their terms. They can improve the quality of their life, you know. So with coaching, people come to you, don't they, because something isn't working. Mm. You work with them so that they get to live 
life the way they want to live. So it's brilliant. And then the other side of it is supporting coaches and counsellors who want to work with people who are using alcohol around the alcohol sort of risk stuff because it's quite as you know alcohol carries quite a lot of risks with it so a part of what I I do is share that knowledge and experience because I ran an alcohol service just an alcohol service for about four years there's a phenomenal amount of learning in there um, that I can share so I'm really interested in upskilling sort of the next lot of people coming up yeah and it's so important I mean we've talked about this privately quite a lot haven't we that the importance of being alcohol aware and actually really understanding the risks of you know self-detox and and what can happen and you know within the the world of kind of social media and it's fantastic that there's so much kind of conversation but that leaves a skills gap in people really knowing you know how to look after people properly so you know I think it's really great that you're kind of doing that and you know providing those services for for coaches so they can they can really understand the risks and 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 what to do you know um when working in this area yeah and you know obviously you're you're a mum yeah we're in we're in lockdown at the moment um it's a big big conversation about kind of stress and homeschool and um being in the house together do you have any tips or any kind of approaches that you use just to sort of dial down that stress really and you know if people are struggling with their drinking to kind of help them to not kind of hit the fuck it button yeah, so I, my kids are grown up now, so it's very different for me. So I, I'm a granny. <laughs> so Tom's 31 and married and got a kid, um, and I'm helping them out with childcare. And then Elliot's 19, and you know he's very self-sufficient and he's just getting on with it. So my kids are grown ups and they're doing all right um, at the moment, which is great. But if I know, you know, I think it's quite a lot of people know that my journey parenting Elliot wasn't always easy and I've sort of spoken to a lot of mums in this situation over the last few weeks particularly and that whole thing around homeschooling definitely I just think that that's not helping just calling it that because if this was if this was happening when Elliot was young I would not have been homeschooling him and I know that's probably isn't going to go down well with a lot of people but we would have just had to have done whatever we needed to do to get through the day. You know, it did not cope very well with school. He was hardly ever in the classroom. It was a very, very difficult um, experience, the whole thing. And very early on, I let go of that academic stuff and I just focused on the emotional stuff. And we literally stayed in the day. You know, it was literally, okay, what do we need to do today? What can we do today that's going to help? I would have been out every day with Elliot you know I'd have been down the skate park or I'd have been bodyboarding or been up on the moors doing nature we most definitely would not have been sat inside doing lessons he wouldn't have been able to do it Mm. I think the most important thing that I would like anybody to hear if they're struggling with homeschooling is you're not a teacher and there are lots of things you can teach your children it doesn't have to be standard academic things there are a million and different 
you know, different ways to learn something. Like you can be cooking, you can be walking, you can be doing exercise, you can be learning about nature. You've got to make it work for you on a daily basis. And that doesn't mean that you're a crap parent. It means nothing, you know, and it's so it's not getting caught up in that I'm not good enough because I'm not doing this or my child's not at this stage. No, it was hardly ever in the classroom in primary school. Yet when he went to high school, he did really well and he got all his GCSEs and he's, you know, a qualified graphic designer. He works freelance and he does very well. Mm. And there are lots of children that miss big chunks of education that do really well. So get caught up in that narrative and really focus on what you and your family need. Yeah, I think there's that there needs to be a little bit of a kind of I mean, I know I was watching something with Mother Puckers, you know, doing um, quite a lot of work which is she's done an amazing uh, survey. I'll put this on the, the show notes, actually, because it's really good to she's working with the TEC to just kind of bring to the government, you know, this question. And I do think there is a kind of a little bit of an inner rebellion to go on, certainly if I was in the UK, because I think what's happened, like the first lockdown, it was like, oh, we'll do a bit, we won't do a bit. But the, the government has put a huge amount of pressure on schools. There's then been put pressure on parents to be like, you have to homeschool. And so, because I know from people in our group, they're like, we're getting letters from the school saying we must do this. It's obligatory. It's it's not a choice. Um, and I do just think there needs to be a bit of like rebellion, you know, and just be like, well, you know what? No, yeah, <laughs> like, no, I'm not going to have it's more important to me that my family are not shouting at each other and creating you know long-term emotional kind of difficulties within our family bonds than them doing double maths today like yeah you know and I know if you if you can take out the kind of the the government noise I know the teachers that I know would say exactly the same thing so it's like they send out the letters but behind it they're shouting going don't worry just do whatever you can you know so um but it's 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 really upsetting you know the kind of pressure that people are being put under yeah it's really interesting that whole parenting thing and that it's a it's a much bigger conversation I'm sure it's a conversation that you and Kate have quite a lot that is something I see a lot now because, you know, I had Tom 31 years ago. The conversations were very different back then to the conversations when I was having Elliot. And even later on, again, this whole thing about, you know, Instagram mum and what parenting looks like and what sort of mum you need to be. It's just all complete rubbish. Sorry. It's like, <laughs> that's great if life's easy, but if you have a child that doesn't fit into a box, then you've got to let go of a lot of stuff to be able to parent that child. And that's effectively what parenting Elliot taught me. It just taught me to let go of literally everything I'd ever thought, understood, believed in, and like go back to basics and build it from ground up. Um, So Yeah. And, you know, and people, as you say, people can be hugely successful. And I think if you, I think a good thing that, you know, I used to do with my students when they were you know, because I used to teach in higher education in a business school, you know, highly elite, massive amounts of stress and and parental pressure on those kids. 
and so we do sort of successful people in business and then we'd look at you know some of the people that they loved the most had like dropped out of school you know <laughs> so yeah. it's just like don't worry about it <laughs> just you know just do your best I mean yeah I think um Steve Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and uh, the majority of those sort of leaders they took very kind of wayward paths Richard Branson you know yeah. so it's like you don't need academia necessarily to no. certainly I'm living proof of that because school was not really my favorite place to um no and me neither learn, and you know no me neither and most of the people like I know it's very different now but so I'm 51 when we were at school if you didn't engage nobody cared <laughs> so you just, like disappeared <laughs> which was great for us at the time <laughs> Yeah, and there's loads true. of my age group that left school without any qualifications, didn't have jobs for ages, you know, all that type of stuff that have done all right. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I kind of agree with you. But it's tough. And I really feel for, you know, parents that are under that pressure and are getting right. that sort of constant narrative. And because you can have your own opinions about it. But when you've got, you know, your your husband or your wife, putting pressure on you then you've got you know the school putting pressure the the government putting pressure and your parents it's like it can be a lot even if you've got that kind of little fire within you to go you know what I'm not really sure about this but I guess it is it's taking that tenacity to think for yourself isn't it which kind of was what you said right at the beginning is that you know we are kind of 100 percent responsible for the choices we make yeah it's getting really simple shutting out the noise focusing on what you and your family needs not comparing yeah I mean pretty much what I did with Elliot it was like I didn't talk to anybody that wasn't helping my situation because they didn't understand not in a judgmental way it's just like well you're not in it so you know unless you you understand what we're going through then I can't be listening to that and just got really simple and really focused on him and what mm. he did and we worked from that and he's thriving so that's a yes. wicked story um okay so we're coming to the end we always finish with a tip of the day and your reason to love sober so what would be your tip for people um oh connection um which adds a whole other dimension to what's going on at the moment but I suppose my thing is we're all humans and, you know, everybody's doing the best they can with what they've got. So how we can embrace difference, accept that we're different, listen to each other, listen without judgment and be a little bit more open. You know, something that I challenge myself every day is to be a little bit more open, a bit more open minded and to listen, listen without judgment and do what I can to connect with different people in different ways because it feels good for us I actually believe it's essential <laughs> I know lots of people are like oh yeah I don't need to interact with that many people I'm like yeah you do um, <laughs> you don't or it's difficult or uncomfortable how we work on that and feel good about connecting and connecting with different people and just more of that really love it yeah listen without judgment and connect yeah yeah I believe that yeah and what's your reason to love sober um oh my god everything <laughs> it's it's just about life isn't it it's about 
when you're not using a substance regularly, I mean, there's a difference between, you know, using a drug appropriately. That's completely different, you know, to when you use something on a daily basis or in significant amounts that impacts on your thoughts and your feelings and your way of being. And when you don't do that or you just use occasionally, you get to be present and you get to be aware and you get to fully experience life. It's like what you said. So it's, you know, you're experiencing it in full colour in HD. Yeah, we know that doesn't happen straight away. And yes, we have to do some work on that. But you can and it feels really good to be present in the moment, aware, clarity, you know what's going on. It just feels good. Oh, thank you so much, Stephanie. It's been wicked talking thank to you. you. And um, your all your details will be in the show notes. So if people want to get in cu- touch with her, then please do. And um, I want to see some sort of, you know, some pictures of you dressed up in your dance stuff. And <laughs> is there any, any videos out there we can see? I'm very impressed. Just like, you know, when no. you think you know someone and it's like, I, d- I literally don't know this person at all. <laughs> So what actually what's interesting about that is West Coast Swing was the dance that I really got into, that I went deep into. And actually, West Coast Swing, you wear jeans and T-shirts. It's very casual, very low key. You sometimes have to put black trousers on and proper dance shoes if you're competing, but not always. So mostly it's jeans and T-shirts. So it's not flashy in that way, whereas tango and salsa and dive sometimes you'll get people in heels and dresses um but yeah I think it's a sport so you're going dancing so you're just like got my flat shoes on got my stretch jeans on got a t-shirt on I'm gonna get hot and sweaty for hours <laughs> I'm I'm I mean you've piqued my interest I'm gonna Ooh. go and google it and uh, I'll send and, you some uh, links for you to look at oh yes yes please yeah All right, then. Thanks so much. And if you're immediately concerned about your drinking, then please do reach out, you know, info at lovesober.com. Go and see your GP. Reach out to Stephanie. Um, You know, Soberistas has an anonymous Ask the Doctor service. So reach out there. Um, Just know that you're not alone. And, you know, there are many of us out there that have kind of walked this sober path. And, you know, it, it takes some work and it does take some time. But, you know, the the joy of sobriety is really, really worth it. So sending you lots of love and we will speak to you next week.